Sometimes I face a rumination project that I dread, and this is one of those. I just want to be completely upfront about that. The Zeno Saga series is actually known for being convoluted to the point of complicated, and, well, this is where I admit something. If you had asked me this question four or so years ago, I would have said this game is very anime. Now, what I would mean is that it's very weird. Usually what I nowadays try to call weird for weird's sakes. But back then, that's just what I called that. Now, obviously, that was a misnomer, and I have been making efforts to correct that over the years. There is a lot of weird for weird's sake in Xenosaga. Not a lot of that in Xenosaga 1, though. And that's kind of why I wanted to start with this preface. Sometimes there's a work that I tend to mentally group into one thing. It's actually difficult for me to think of the three Lord of the Rings movies as separate films, for example. I just consider Lord of the Rings to be one of my favorite films of all time. Um, there are other things like this. This is not unique to this. So, for the longest time, I have mentally considered Xenosaga as basically one game. Lord knows Xenosaga 2 literally starts a few hours after Xenosaga 1, for example. There's a couple years between 2 and 3, but still, it's still one congruent thing. I'm Having replayed this, my opinion on that has completely changed. And I've also kind of basically reminded myself of how different each of these three games is. It's one of the reasons why these games weren't on the schedule for the longest time, because I wasn't sure if this was going to be one video or three. However, having gone through the first game, it's worth noting, as of this moment, I have not replayed two or three, by the way. I've just been doing research. Um, but as of this moment, uh, I have no doubt I'm going to be splitting these up into three videos. Because I've been doing research on the behind-the-scenes. I've decided not to go fully in-depth on this one, mostly because... You know, I'd just be repeating names, and, well, to be completely blunt, I wasn't able to find the level of detail I prefer for going into detail. So what I'm going to tell you is that each of these three games was effectively crafted by different people. Let's rewind a little bit. Once upon a time, there was a group of people, uh, three big ones, uh, Mr. Takahashi himself, of course, is the main one, along with his wife, but there were several people who worked at a company called Squaresoft. They made several games, worked on, I should say, several games, including Final Fantasy V, Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, and they had done work on some other games and projects for Square as well. They had put together a treatise and a design for what they wanted to be Final Fantasy VII. Now, I've actually talked about this many times before. Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VII, Xenogears, and Parasite Eve were all basically shared ideas and concepts across each other, because in the development phase leading up to and including the development of all of those games, most of the people involved in them all kind of pooled their all ideas because everyone had a different idea of what they wanted to do, and they took bits and pieces from that aggregate whole to make each individual game. That's why there's some narrative and thematic connections between all these games, despite otherwise being completely distanced from each other. Now, Xenogears is the big one here. Xenogears was always intended to be a part of a major arc, a long-term story development that was, this was basically going to be the peak window. Um, this is an unusual approach to storytelling design, but not completely unheard of. There are plenty of other examples in history where someone has basically written episode five of a six-piece work, you know, intending that to be the viewer's first, in, um, first insight onto things. 
it's very carefully, it is very difficult and requires careful crafting in order to make this kind of fiction work. Because what you have to do is you have to present things in this so that it appears to be A, and it has to still be interesting because the audience still needs to be engaged. And then when you go back and see the prequels, you understand that what you were actually seeing was B the whole time. However, by all accounts, Xenogears was basically crafted with this in mind and does kind of link up with the Xenosaga series in more ways than one. However, Xenogears also famously ran into some significant problems with regards to its development time, and most importantly, its budget. And they faced a couple of choices. They decided to basically cram the rest of the story into what were effectively narrations into Disc 2, and, well... I'm sure if you're watching this video, you're probably aware of the consequences of that. For various reasons, which I've never been able to find sufficient detail on, this crew, along with several other people at Square, left Square to go form their own company and basically went under the Namco, or... I actually don't remember if they were Bandai Namco at the time, but anyways, left to form a new company, a new development uh, studio underneath their uh, umbrella known as Monolith. Now, Monolith is actually still here today. This is where things get funny to me, because some of the general uh, information here is available to me, but very recently in, in the research for this game, I discovered an interview from Mr. Takahashi himself regarding their relationship with Nintendo. Now, that may sound unconnected, but the relevant part is he mentioned how they got to that point. He went to Monolith Soft to, to uh, in his own words, to make a development company, a development studio, that was entirely focused on creative freedom and new ideas, and a way to philosophically bring new developers in and help them to get their footing and try and add new blood to video games as a concept. A very laudable goal. So they made Xenosaga. Now, if you're paying attention, this is already basically the first of several retcons that will go through this franchise. Because originally Xenogears was supposed to be Xenosaga 5. And then they were going to go back and do 1, 2, 3, 4, and then they were going to go do 6. And that 6 was going to be the finale and conclusion to everything. This was planned out well in advance. It's also one of the reasons why there are significant thematic connecting points between Xenosaga and Xenogears to this very day. So they made Xenosaga 1, this game. We'll talk a little bit more about the plight of the other games later, but all you need to know right now is, in the wake of Xenosaga 1, he believed, and along, he removed himself from development and said, you know what, we need, this needs to be about new developers, new creators, new writers. So they handed it off to a new team. That team didn't do well, and they handed it off to another team. And that game didn't do that well either, so the series was basically canned. Now, I'm mentioning this here because it's very relevant to my point that I started with, that each of these are distinct games, effectively made by different crews with different long-term goals for the story in mind. While there are still definitively connecting points between Xenosaga Episode 1, 2, and 3, there's also, well, let's just say, if, especially if you're analyzing the works, it's very obvious that a lot of this was retconned, changed in midstream, or basically they decided to go with a different idea. Whether that's good or bad, that's up to you. That's opinion. I'm not here to give judgment on that. Oh, by the way, that Nintendo connection I mentioned? He mentioned how he was grateful for the additional work they got when they started working with Nintendo. This was back in the Wii, uh, the mid-Wii era. 
and uh, Nintendo basically opened up their doors to them, and Monolith Soft started not only working on, of course, uh, Xenoblade, which started their next series of games, but they started doing a lot of work on other Nintendo franchises to give them little contract work on the side, including Skyward Sword, for example, or, more recently, Breath of the Wild. Just a little information I thought I'd share there. I have looked into both Pied Piper and A Missing Year. I will reference them uh, unintentionally where I think it's relevant, but I'm not going to be specifically covering them in this work. I also want to... I want to discuss that point I made earlier. Um, the weird for weird's sake. But I can't. It's, it's utterly impossible. Uh, <laughs> no, what I really want to discuss is how hard a lot of the pronunciations in this game were for me. Anybody who knows me knows that I have issues with pronunciation. Uh, my mind tends to look at a word and say, well, that's how it's pronounced. Even if I've heard it, this sometimes happens, especially if I've read it more often than I've heard it. Uh, until I replayed this game, I referred to a certain android as Cosmos. Now, that's not necessarily incorrect, in this game itself, they pronounce her name three separate distinctions. I will be trying to use the pronunciation Shion uses. Shion, sorry. Uses, which is Cosmos. Um, for obvious reasons, it's really difficult for me to say because there's this big Cosmos. It's like there's a, there's an interrupted point in there because it's basically the same sound being repeated, which I have difficulty with. Cosmos just flows more naturally. But, at the same time, that's kind of the point, isn't it? This is not a person. This isn't even a name. This is a designation. And there is a nice big dash in her name. Its name. So it does kind of make a degree of sense to have Cosmos as the presentation. I'll do my best. No promises on that one. I do want to talk about the gameplay. So, it's been a long time since I've played these games. Several years. Uh, I guess actually not that many years. Probably about ten years or so, something like that. Um, I, I actually didn't get into the Xenosaga series until after Episode 3 was already out, because I didn't like Xenogears all that much, so, <laughs> as I've talked about before. So when I saw Xenosaga, I was like, eh, I'll get around to it. Um, I do... Xenosaga Episode 1, let's, let's start ignoring 2 and 3 for a moment. Episode 1 feels like a lot of good gameplay ideas, hampered by an inability to execute them. Now, I want to explain what I mean by that very quickly. I've talked many times, game design discussions have been coming into my world more and more lately, which is good. I like discussing game design. It's very, it's definitely one of my passions and my hobbies. But one of the things I say many, many times is a good concept, a good game design philosophy still has to be executed properly. Let me explain what I mean by that. You might think a grid-based tactical game with RPG elements and heavy story focus is all you need to make a good game. But you would be incredibly incorrect, no offense, because you still need to implement that well. Usually, implementation boils down to three primary points. The first is presentation. That's the visual and the audio side of things. Uh, how well you do with the, the sound effects, the music design, the music direction, um, sound direction and, and design, the uh, visual storytelling in the background, or camera angles and directing, that kind of a thing. The second point is, of course, the obvious one. Uh, that would be the... You know, I don't actually have a codified term for this. Let's call it the player power progression curve, because that's what I've been calling it recently. I did an entire lore week discussing that, actually. In other words, the player should be able to effectively do output equal to roughly X, 
and therefore designing encounters and difficulty to accommodate X, right? So in other words, if you're like about here on the curve and the enemy should be like maybe just a little bit above or just a little bit below or whatever's appropriate to the scene. And of course, the final thing is level design. Level design is, duh, I don't think I need to explain that one. Now, I'm, I'm briefly <laughs> glassing over both the first and the last because the middle one is the problem with Xenosaga Episode 1, in my opinion. I feel like the difficulty curve was basically not well designed. Um, I feel like they relied a little bit too much on the player actively going into the Encephalon several times, you know, in the, on their own, regardless of progression through the plot, deliberately to go and grind, to level up. Now, I know that's kind of an interesting topic nowadays, since so many RPG players tend to automatically assume that grinding is a natural part of an RPG. Let me just go and say that, from my opinion, I disagree with that. I don't think grind should be a built-in concept that you rely upon when it comes to designing your difficulty curve. And there's a couple of pretty significant meat gates in this game that more or less require that. Now, obviously, if I was better at this game, or if I knew the game inside and out, or if I was a speedrunner, or if I was a tasser, I could bypass these problems, but I am none of these things. I'm just playing the game for the show, trying to analyze and design it as I go. Or dissect it, not, not design. I'm designing the game, guys! <laughs> no, some year, some year. <clears throat> so having said that, though, that is my biggest problem with the gameplay of Xenosaga 1. It was basically a chore to play through, and I don't think it needed to be because, and this is where I go back, tie this back into what I earlier said, a lot of the concepts and ideas were really cool. First of all, the idea of the Encephalon is a neat way to actually have gameplay and story integration of going off and grinding a dungeon. Because the UMS or the UNS or whatever the hell they actually call it, you know, the, the, the subconscious internet, which is actually part of the subconscious existence of collective unconscious tying together all spirit energy in order to maintain the physical reality to exist in, I told you, weird. Um, <laughs> being, it has a natural and direct, uh, tangible interaction with the physical plane. Oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to say something really quick here. Uh, the game, ref specific, the games, uh, specifically refer to the uh, real domain and the imaginary number domain. Uh, I will probably mention those a few times. I don't think that will really come up in this episode, but I have other terms for that which I think work better. Uh, the physical plane and the spiritual plane. Bam. It, it's a lot easier to say, is what I'm trying to say. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So the Encephalon is a good idea, and I like how it ties into the lore. I like the different types of enemies. I wish they had done a little bit more with that, but, you know, the uh, built-in weaknesses based on enemy type is a concept I've always liked, even going back to very simplistic games like Final Fantasy Mystic Quest or slightly more advanced games like Final Fantasy X. And I'm trying to think of an example that's not a Final Fantasy. Fire Emblem. You know, the triangle, right? I, I do like that general concept. Uh, I also like the method of obtaining skills in this series, you know, having to have... It's basically the FF9 thing in, in its own little way. You know, you keep you keep the accessory equipped and you level up and then you extract and boom, there you go, skill. It's now yours. And you can cycle those around to get different skills and different people. It's a good way to customize the party loadout and it's a good way to build yourself in a certain direction. Now, it takes so long to do it, this is where kind of that grind comes in, uh, that it basically mandates if you need X or Y for an upcoming boss fight, then you got to go run around in circles for a while. Same thing as well with the stat uh, distribution, you know, spending, uh, oh god, I forget what they call them in this game, XP, directly in order to raise attribute points is a nice idea, and something that I do approve of when it comes to the design of RPG. It's just, again, I feel like they mandated you doing that a little bit too much. 
back to the difficulty thing. Moving on. Um, I love the eggs, the AGWS armors. I, I know that's being redundant. I like that concept. I, I feel it's a cool addition to the thing. I didn't actually use them all that often myself, but I like the option of being able to, like, you know what, I want a big old mecha for this fight. Um, I'm going to have difficulty, if not indeed impossibility, repairing this thing, so it's basically a one-shot and it's gone. But it's really useful as a cooldown type thing, and I, I thought that was a neat implementation. I also thought the turn indicator could have been a little bit better designed, and... Um, a little bit more intuitive, but I also like the shortcut system. Uh, if anything, I'm mostly reminded of Kingdom Hearts on that one, which is weird because Kingdom Hearts is actually a action RPG, and this is fully a turn-based RPG. But I like the ability to shortcut an ability and say, well, I could hit A, down, 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 right, A, down, down, A, or I can hit Y, and just bam, use that ability directly. It was a nice little convenience feature. And of course, you only have so many buttons, so it's not like you're putting everything on the shortcuts. Um, I wanted to talk about something else, didn't I? Gameplay-wise, where is it? Ah, traps. I really like the traps thing. Red for the win, by the way. I like the idea of you know doing stuff on the, uh, I guess, the dungeon layer, the overworld layer. There's no real overworld in this game, but you know what I mean. In order to affect the combat, that's a concept I like. Again, going back to the SNES era, and so I like this particular implementation of it. If anything, I just wish there was more things you could do to affect, you know, walking into a fight to affect it. I suppose that is basically all I have to say about the combat. Although I do have to say really quick that I find it funny that Cos Cosmos is uh, overpowered. I mean, she's not overpowered. She's way stronger in cutscenes than she is in gameplay. But she's also basically your best party member, at least in this game specifically. Now that makes sense. Again, gameplay and story integration. She's literally a combat android. I'm one of those people who thinks that combat androids or combat robots are usually under, let's say, poorly represented in fiction. You know, I look at that and it's like, well, that, that looks like a maneuver a human would make. You're supposed to be able to calculate things faster and have more accuracy with your shots or your punches or whatever. Why are you doing that, right? So I like how Cosmos is presented such that she is what I would mentally consider the capabilities of an android with combat, with combat built uh, uh, programming or whatever. Now, sadly enough, I have very, very little to say about Cosmos in this game. She's practically a non-character. She only shows the blue eyes basically the one time. And that's kind of it. I do like how they present her. They do a good job of presenting someone who basically is not so much immoral or amoral so much as a complete divorcement from ethics or morality entirely. There are only objectives and the best possible path, percentage-wise, to obtain those objectives. It's all statistics at that point. And I like how they do that. Her shooting down Virgil is probably one of the better examples. I'm just going to refer to it as a her, just to make this simple. Her shooting Virgil is one of the best examples of that. There was no malice there. Virgil was not someone she wanted to die. Virgil was not someone who was an enemy combatant. But... As she states rather clearly, Virgil was in the way, and therefore doing shooting through him would would make it far easier for me to continue operating my primary parameters rather than trying to adjust my aim and get around him. So he died. He was not flagged as important. There was no asterisk or check mark next to his name. That makes perfect sense to me, and it's good representation. I do have one question though. Why the hell did she wake up on the uh, 
Oh, God, what's the name of that ship? The Wilgunde? I could be misremembering, but I don't recall anything ever explaining that particular tidbit. Like, she just wakes up on her own, and it's like, uh... Now, I do like how everyone freaks out about that. I like that for two reasons. It's a good example of storytelling that makes sense now, and then makes more sense later. In the moment, there's this combat android, which, remember, we've already kind of fought with in the Encephalon uh, several times, so they're freaked out about her turning on without any authorization and the inability to stop her. Later on, we see just how much more messed up it is, um, thanks to uh, Terenkov. God, I think that's how they pronounce his name. I actually have pronunciation guides jotted down here to help me out. Uh, thanks to his flashbacks, we, we do see that this is something that's kind of happened before, and therefore people would be a little bit more on edge than otherwise, because we've already seen a Cosmos get up and kill a lot of people. So, yay. Why did she get up? Now, I'm predicting something, because there's a few questions in the Xenosaga franchise, all three games, that are left unanswered. Some of them are obviously unanswered, as in things that were obviously supposed to be continued in, like, a Phase 4 or whatever. Um, not to spoil too much, but Xenosaga 3, in my opinion, clearly ends in a way that's like, you know, see you next time! <laughs> you know, they're to be continued! It, it was just all but missing the to-be-continued line under there. Um, I know some people probably disagree with that, that's fine. But some of the questions in the franchise, to my knowledge, are never answered. I'll be bringing up more of those later, because they're not really relevant in one. Um, but I digress. So, <clears throat> I also want to mention one other thing. This game came out in a weird era for JRPGs, where there was a simultaneous push for more traditional storytelling and more diverse storytelling, because it basically as a direct reaction to the SNES PS1 era, which realistically was effectively one era in game development. Um, that arc between those two. I, I don't want to get too much into that topic. So I feel like a lot of the characters here have sufficient depth and complexity to make them believable and interesting. And then there's the other characters. If I had a second major complaint about this game, other than the, the grinding problem, it would be the fact that there's too many characters where even though I didn't really remember what they were saying or the specific cutscene, I could sit here and predict basically everything they were going to say and the tone with which they were going to say it because it was that textbook. You know, as if I have personality blah, and therefore I have this presentation throughout the whole thing. One could argue very strongly that, again, just in this game, Shion herself falls into this category. That, that she is just... Very, very typical. The ditzy scientist, basically, who has no comprehension or understanding of social norms, does not know how to interact with people around her at all on an individual or on a macro level, um, and doesn't really have a proper understanding of, shall we say, significance or importance outside of the realm of her specific expertise. Now... I will freely admit she gets fleshed out a little bit more in later games, at least by memory. Again, haven't replayed them yet. But in this game, I just found myself going, okay. And I don't actually have much else to say about her as a consequence. Now, I do have more to say about Alan. Alan is interesting to me because he feels like an attempt at a what I usually call an O'Brien. Someone who is designed to be a player perspective character. Alan's just a guy, right? Like, he's not the reincarnation of, of the Maiden of Magdalene. He's not 
um, a oh god, I can't remember the acronym, the, the URTV or whatever. He's not uh, a supernatural augmented cyborg. He's not a mega designed uh, incredible real uh, or realian, excuse me. He's a dude <laughs> who happens to have a crush on her. But the thing is. I feel like, again, focusing just on this game, Alan here is presented more as an object to be the butt of the jokes than to be a perspective character, a viewpoint character. And I feel that's a bit of a uh, missed opportunity. There was a lot of possibility to basically tell the story through the lens of the ordinary guy to help give us, the players, some perspective on these fantastical events. Instead, well... There are two other characters, uh, Sean being one of them, that feel more like the these are the primary focus characters of the story. Now, uh, speaking of Alan a little bit, I just want to quickly cover a couple characters which don't get a lot of characterization, but I would feel remiss if I didn't mention. Uh, the first is, of course, Virgil. <laughs> um, I don't want to talk too much about Virgil's later stuff, because that's basically irrelevant to this game. What I do want to talk about is how Virgil and several of the characters feel a little bit extreme to me. And I notice this is a common concept in a lot of JRPGs in general. You have someone who has character traits, but they are, for lack of a better way to put it, exaggerated to the point where those character traits are massively dominant. You know, someone who likes candy is eating candy all the time, you know, in order to emphasize that character trait. Now, sometimes that is done specifically because they don't... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. For whatever reason why the writers or the storytellers or the directors want to make sure the audience picks up on this character trait so they magnify it to the point where only a blind man could miss it. Whatever the reasons for that, you know, that, that, is, a, that is a common uh, goal involved. The other reason I've tended to notice, though, is the belief that, and I've heard this said by several authors, I'm curious what you guys think of this, the belief that characters who are more toned down are not interesting. That if you put to portray things without, let's just say, drama, not melodrama, but regular old drama, that what you're seeing is something that just becomes more mundane and therefore less engaging. I don't know what I think about that idea. I think that pulls down to execution, in my opinion. I've seen eh, one of my favorite Studio Ghibli's of all time is Kiki's Delivery Service, which was pretty damn mundane. Um, but nevertheless, I do, I do have to think that, that they were going probably in that direction with this one, because a lot of these people's traits are just, woo! Like, they look out the window and then they jump! And I suppose that's a good way to segue into talking about Elbido. Rubido, Elbido, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I always have a hard time pronouncing his name, because I want to say Albedo. But yes, Albedo. First of all, props to Crispin Freeman. His laugh got a little bit on my nerves after a while, I'll be honest, because he does it so many times. <laughs> but he did put in a very good performance. One of the first things I want to mention about Albedo is the fact that he does come across as someone who I would usually classify as insane. Not someone who's crazy. I'm crazy. Crazy is just a willingness to do and go beyond normal limits. Insane is there's something wrong with the structure of your brain, or, or your mentality, or your soul, or whatever the hell. Um, and albedo clearly belongs in the latter category in my own personal linguo. And I like that, as weird as that may sound, because too often fiction um, tends to make a crazy character just violent. 
Like, how many times have you seen that? This isn't even limited to, like, video games or even Japanese-based fiction. Um, how many times have you seen, like, a cop drama or a criminal uh, procedural where there's the crazy one, right? There's the crazy one over there, and he's he's just cuckoo compared to the other guys. But what they actually mean by that is he is excessively violent, uh, either because he's sociopathic or because he's just incredibly aggressive or whatever, right? Albedo, weirdly enough, doesn't come across as particularly violent. He comes across as excessively unstable. And I do think that adds some wonderful uh, flavor to his personality and is probably one of the reasons why he's so memorable. I wouldn't be surprised if most of you remember, you know, of amongst characters that you remember most from this franchise, Albedo is probably towards the top of that list. Now that's funny because he gets like one no-line cameo, like halfway through the game, uh, involving Margulis, who I'll talk about in a minute. And then he's got his bit where he's, he just has like a couple lines of dialogue, again, with Margulis. And then he doesn't show up until what is effectively the, the second to last, well, excuse me, no, the final act, and then acts as the pseudo-final boss, uh, the penultimate final boss. It's funny because he is so memorable despite having almost no presence in this game. Then again, Wilhelm's barely in this game either, but I'm getting off topic. But it's so obvious why he has such presence. The scenes he has are used to great effect. And, in, and to be completely blunt, it's creepy as hell. Um, the scene of him basically deliberately going out of his way to be as horrible as possible to force Momo to shut down so that he could sift through her memories is just kind of messed up. And the cutting back and forth between that and the action of the heroes was an excellent juxtaposition and also kept the pace going for that final act very well. Similarly, it also is obvious if you're paying attention that Albedo is after something. Like, there is goal in mind there. But the methods by which he's using make it difficult to really define what goal he's after. The closest thing we have to a hint at all is his final parting words to Rubido, where he mentions the, uh, you know, the whole uh, my other half comment. I forget exactly how he phrased it, but you know what I mean. It's as close as we get to that. And... I also want to say, speaking of Albedo, the I suppose I shouldn't really talk about that yet. I just wanted to say that it's interesting to me, the people who try to use Albedo for their own ends, which include both Margulis and Wilhelm, which means Wilhelm, but Wilhelm's behind everything in the entire franchise, so whatever. <laughs> Point being that showcasing... Usually, a manipulating schemer will look at someone like Albedo as someone who is an extraneous, uncontained variable. In other words, something you can't, with high certainty, predict what they're going to do or why. The fact that he is trying to use him in such effect is almost weird to me. Then again, as I mentioned earlier, Albedo does have specific goals in mind, so maybe Wilhelm is just focusing on the macro scale and not really caring what happens on the minor scale. One planet, more or less, doesn't really matter when you consider the stakes involved. But I'm getting off topic on that one, too. I mentioned Margulis. First of all, I am a big fan of Margulis. And yes, I have to admit, part of that is because Michael McConaughey is awesome. There's some really good voice acting in this game, uh, in general. It's weird, because this is the PS2 era... And voice acting in English for Japanese games 
was still getting its footing. Like, it wasn't gutter, you know, it wasn't the gutter trash of so many PS1 games, but it was still developing to the point where it would start having, you know, regular good voice acting in these things. Um, it could be argued that most, even like the bigger name titles, didn't really have good voice acting until they got a couple of games in, you know. Final Fantasy, excuse me. Um, <laughs> but, again, I'm getting off topic. Margulis is interesting mostly to me because he strikes me as someone who... who is a character written by two people. One of those people wanted to write a bad guy. And the other person wanted to write a zealot who was supremely convinced of their cause. Now, I know most, I, I imagine what most of you are going to say, what's the difference? But the difference is a zealot who is convinced of their cause will say and act things differently than a bad guy. A bad guy, and I'm trying to think how to phrase this. This has come up a lot recently, so that's why this is kind of fresh in my mind. When you're writing a bad guy, there are certain tones in voice acting, there are certain lines for the actual speaking, and there are certain types of actions that you say in a certain way that are intended to be audio cues or visual cues to the audience so that the audience knows this is a bad person. Um, the, I would argue those kind of things are usually not really necessary these days, but I, I imagine most of you know what I mean by that. You could argue that a character who says, I will kill you all, has some kind of other layers or depth or complexity to them. But on the face of it, a character who says that with that kind of tonality, that is the, the, the writers and creators telling us this is a bad guy, right? And that's how Margulis came off for me. A lot of his interactions with uh, Cherenkov and Cherenkov, excuse me, and with... Uh, Oh my god, I can't think of her name. All of a sudden, Pirelli or Peretti or whatever her name is. She's barely in this game. Uh, kind of get you the idea that this is someone who has more complexity to him. That there is something else there other than, and then I will kill all the puppies. But then you see other scenes which are clearly designed to establish him as a puppy killer. There's even a scene where he's like, what's 1.5 million people do up to me? Why do we care? Now, for example, if I could just give a direct example, a critique, if I will, of what I'm talking about, it would have been more interesting to me if Margulis, instead of saying, they are irrelevant, <laughs> puppies, he would have said, said something like, it is a shame the meat must pass if only they had fulfilled their true potential, if only they had been awakened. As is, is no great loss. Right? You know, something along those lines, I feel, would have better tied into the way his character was being presented. I also kind of like the fact that he... He serves as an interesting foil to several of the other characters in this game. Of course, obviously, he'll be in future games as well. But here he serves as a military foil to Cherenkov. He serves as a soldier foil to Ziggy. And... Well, I guess actually about it within this game, so I guess I'll just chop it up there. But you see what those kind of personalities could lead to if taken in a different direction. I suppose uh, I should also talk about Helmer while I'm here. I have, like, nothing to say about him. I like him. He's, he's, he's a rare example of a character. I don't see this kind of character often in fiction. The bureaucrat slash politician who is legitimately helpful, who is going out of the way to try and help the party and be their secret ally amongst the bureaucracy. 
Oh, speaking of which, anybody caught how incredibly terrifying the Federation is? Oh my god. They actually have a wonderful presentation of that. In contrast to some of the other storytelling and character stuff, the presentation of the Federation is pretty much spot on. It, it's flawless. It feels like the old Republic should have felt in Phantom Menace, in my opinion. Massive, bloated, bureaucratic nightmare. I will never forget the scene where all the, the little pictures of, of the people's chatter chopping off, and some of them are talking at each other, and some of them are talking over each other, and it just sends into this absolute mess and chaos that they're citing regulations that are four digits long. Article 1112, paragraph 363. It's a lot of information. I feel bad for the voice actors having to voice that stuff so, sm so smoothly and clipped, but it gets across the idea perfectly that this is this massive redundancy upon redundancy bureaucracy. And as weird as this is going to sound, it's probably the most believable thing for me, personally, within the Xenosaga series. Uh, so, who else? Um, I want to mention Ziggy. I don't know why, but I just kind of took a liking to Ziggy. He doesn't really have much to do in this one, but he does have some obvious protective instincts. He's obviously been through some serious crap. We haven't even met Voyager yet, so we don't really know the specifics. But he's someone who flat out wishes to basically die and was prevented from doing so by a massive bureaucratic nightmare. Oh, by the way, did you catch the fact, speaking of the Federation being horrible, did you catch the fact that cyborgs have less legal rights than realians? In fact, the entirety of the Life Recycling Act is probably the most horrifying thing in this entire franchise, and by God, is that saying something. The Life Recycling Act is such a wonderfully uh, peaceful, calm way of basically getting across the idea that we're going to push the boundaries of what humans can be through cybernetics and through genetic engineering, and the legal rights that that would be bestowed upon people who are under those circumstances, um, uh, including uh, Cherenkov, to give an example of someone whose life was altered by that, someone who is quite literally built, as still a human being, but built, thanks to genetic engineering and designing and programming, to be a killer, to be an aggressive, violent person, to, been sent be, to be sent into a war that ended almost immediately after he was deployed. That's terrifying. And, well, I'll get onto that later. But getting back to Ziggy for a second. So Ziggy just strikes me as someone who's just kind of like... <sighs> there's a weird nobility in him. I, I want to credit at least part of that to Richard Epcar's performance. I'm a big fan of Richard Epcar. Although it's weird to hear him and not think of Ansem. In fact, there are so many Kingdom Hearts voice actors in this game, it's kind of weird. I mean, we've got Zemnis, we've got Syx, we've got Ansem. Anyway, that was... Um, <laughs> but I do... I do like the idea of someone who has been through a lot of crap, but has but takes it on the chin. Because so often in fiction, I see someone who's been through a lot of crap and is like super idealistic. Or someone who's been through a lot of crap and is broken by it. But Ziggy, it's just another day to him. And I, there's something noble about that. Like I said, it, it, it's, it's engaging to me. And I found myself sympathizing with him a lot more than most of the other characters. The fact that he's just kind of cool, in addition to everything else, is, is on top of that. He's also completely willing to admit his own emotional problems, at least to someone he trusts. Momo being the obvious example in this game. 
you know, I, I feel embarrassed about my, my old, decrepit body. I don't want someone to see me like this. Like, do you know how few characters are willing to just admit something so deeply personal about them like that? Most people in real life aren't like that. So, again, kind of why he, he, he grew on me very quickly. Um, look at my list of characters here. Who else we got? Um, I mentioned Margulis. I mentioned Cosmos. Um, let's talk about Matthews really quick. I don't have a lot to say about Tony. He's just kind of there. But Matthews and Hammer both mentioned something I wanted to talk about, if that's okay with you. If it's not, then you're probably not listening to me at this point. Matthews, first of all, good voice actor. Uh, good presentation of just the, the pseudo-casual captain. He He's probably one of the more, I'd say, the second most nuanced character I personally saw in this game. He's selfish, but not to an extreme. He is casual, but not to the point where he will not take things seriously. He hits a nice balance point in a lot of his character traits, and I like that. And I like his presentation. I mean, he's there literally to, to go scavenge a military battle and pick amongst the dead like vultures. I, I know they're extinct, but bear me out. And But when he is asked to help people, he's like, well, okay, okay, I can go ahead and do helping of people. Can we help these other people? Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, sure, I guess. Why not? Oh, and also we'll pay the bill for this. Well, that's good. Oh, also, we're we're in the middle of this battle with these other people. Well, screw that. We're going to get involved in that, aren't we? In other words, he's basically like a less good Han Solo. And I kind of like that. But what I like more about Matthews, and this is the thing I wanted to talk about, was the Seraphim Sisters. You remember that? I do not blame you if you don't. It's one line in one scene, but something about it resonated with me hardcore. Xenosaga is a setting in which the tech is ludicrously advanced, to the point where it's actually a little bit weird that conflict exists. It's one of those settings, right, where they are so amazingly advanced, it's just like, wow, really? Um, they literally have the ability to enter a physical internet and take things out of it. That's, that's the level of, of society we've got going here. Also, you don't need, technically need anything to enter the internet. You have remote access to it. You, your person, not, I don't mean like wireless. No, we're, we're way beyond that. Um, so they mention he wants to save up some money and go see a concert from the Seraphim sisters in person. Now, uh, I can't remember who, I think, I forget if it was Tony or Hammer, but one of them says, that's stupid. Why don't you just catch, catch it on the UMS later? Right? I mean, your, they even meant, they start to say a line, your brain can't tell the difference as if you were actually there because of the way these recordings exist and because of the severity of the uh, accuracy of the nerval input that is being processed to then be distributed to other people. This is basically the furthest possible extent of true virtual reality to the point where you cannot chemically tell the difference between uh, virtual reality and physical reality. Now, that's an engaging idea in its own right. But then he goes back and says, it's not the same. I like that a lot. And I want to explain why. It's the same reason I like the replicated food versus real food thing over on Deep Space Nine. Now, fundamentally speaking, I would argue strongly there's no difference. Well, there's at best a minor difference in taste between replicated food 
and grown food. I'm sure there is a difference in taste. I mean, a grown tomato will not taste the same as another grown tomato. There's more variables involved. However, there are several people who specifically say that they prefer one or the other. That's what I like right there, that preference, that desire and design of saying, this is what I want. Why? Because it's what I want. Because I prefer this. Human preference is one of those weird things that, while we can explain some of it, we actually can't explain all of it. We do not understand enough about our own brains to properly diagnose exactly why we prefer certain things over other certain things. But it's something that adds a wonderful, intangible believability to fiction when properly utilized, in my opinion. It's one of the reasons I focus so much on culture and settings when I, when I both write and analyze. So his desire to physically go and be there at a concert, that's awesome. It's a wonderful little bit of flavor and detail that adds wonderfully to the setting. And it actually made Matthews just really strike out as a character for me. There's even a later scene that carries forward the same idea in a different angle. Hammer, the navigationist, they flat out say, why don't you just do it? And he's like, no, I want to do it with my hands. I, he, it actually started with him complaining because he was having trouble keeping up. I was like, you, you don't need to do it with your hands. No, of course I want to do it with your hands. He says it like it's obvious. Why wouldn't I want to do it manually? It's just a little throwaway line, but that preference there added wonderful flavor to the characters. I just wanted to stop and talk about that for a bit. Uh, I also want to mention that as well because deviations of preference... Well, I'm saying this wrong. Preference itself could be presented as a concept of deviation. In other words, you might mathematically be better implemented by having food X or music Y or whatever. Like it might be possible to fundamentally say you should have this, but you as an in, as a distinct human being might, might prefer this other thing instead. You might prefer Y. It may be worse for you. It may even taste worse, but your overall enjoyment of it is elevated because of that preference, that intangible desire of the variation in your base norm. You with me? That is one of the core concepts of the entire Xenosaga franchise. I'm not going to get too much into that because they don't even discuss the notions here, like, at all. But that is what the notions are, basically. That is what society is as presented within these games. That is one of the core psychological concepts of the Xenosaga franchise, that individuals through deviations might prefer the illogic in favor of preference, which will then have a literal and tangible effect on something that should otherwise be considered an intangible reality. And I like that. I like that part of it. It's, it's one of the few things I do enjoy about the presentation of these games. So... I mentioned Matthews, I mentioned Ziggy. One of the things I want to mention, this kind of goes back to gameplay for a second, but you ever notice how small Xenosaga 1 is? I don't mean it's that short. Uh, I mean, it was kind of short. I managed to cram this out in basically two days. Um, although that was playing all day, every day, so make it that what you will. But we start off on the Woglinde, uh, and then you go to the prison asteroid for Utik, then you go to the Elsa, then you go to the cathedral ship, then you go to the Durandal, and then you go to the uh, the Song of the Nephilim. And then that's basically it. Like, it's, it's hard to explain because that doesn't sound like a short amount, but that feels like we basically hop from one location to the next. It's part, and I'm bringing this up partially to explain something that I'm not sure will prove true as we go through the other games, but 
by memory, I prefer Xenosaga 1 over 2 and 3. And I think part of that is down to this. Xenosaga 1 brings the focus down considerably. At its largest point, the most significant threat is the threat to a planet. A decent amount of either absolute destruction or wide-scale devastation, thanks to Albedo being like, <laughs> Now, that is large-scale. But in a science fiction setting where we literally span multiple uh, light years across a half a galaxy and have hi regular hyperspace and instant transmission across and blah, 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 that is relatively small scale. And that is the full culmination of the climax, too. For the most part, the scale is simply the lives of the individuals. And I think that is helped by the choice of locales and the fact that you are relatively contained in them. It does feel a little claustrophobic at times, I'll admit that. I mean, you spend, what, like three hours before you even leave the tutorial ship? But that being said, the other thing I like about Xenosaga 1, by memory, better than 2 and 3, is it's more believable. I mentioned earlier the weird for weird's sake thing. I don't really think there's a lot of weird for weird in Episode 1. Anything that was, was, was brief, and something that I could just kind of wave away. You know, Arianda turning into the cathedral ship, Okay, that's kind of... The cat is definitely weird for weird's sake. The presentation of the notions, which again, they don't really discuss yet, is also weird. You know, I, I, I'm not into that. But that's about it. And I can ignore a couple of things in favor of what is otherwise a very interesting and engaging uh, story, which is kind of what Xenocycle 1 is for me. <sighs> Let me check my notes here. Because um, I have a couple other things I know I'm just kind of saving for later. I mentioned Wilhelm briefly. One of the things I find most interesting about Wilhelm is the fact that the games, again, by memory, Xenosaga 1 definitely does this, they kind of go out of their way to underemphasize him while simultaneously making every appearance of him significant. Every time Wilhelm shows up, it's a big impact on the story. And it implies something massive. One of my favorite examples of this is basically in the ending, when Cosmos is holding up the Elsa with her field in order to, to prevent it from devastation. And we cut over to Wilhelm for like two seconds looking at his compass and noticing that the Chaos Ring has started orbiting. It's very brief, but we've already seen him and that compass earlier in the game. And we know that the Chaos Ring, well, we don't know what it is yet, but we know that the Chaos Ring wasn't orbiting then. So seeing that, it's like, huh. It's, it's, a, it's, it's basically a good example of visual storytelling. It's a big neon sign that says, This! This is important. Remember it for later. And so I like his presentation, but I do have to admit that I... <laughs> well, let's just say that I feel like in Episode 3, he just kind of suddenly shows up and says, All right, let me explain the entire plot here. But again, we, we kind of know why that is, and we'll talk about that later. Um, I also want to mention one other thing really quick. Uh... So I haven't really talked about Chaos. Uh, I don't have a huge amount to say about Chaos. They do a very typical JRPG thing here, where Chaos is like, Hi, I'm a normal guy. Everything's cool and normal. And then every now and again he'll be like, Hi, I'm completely abnormal. And it's well designed. It's again, it's the, it's the neon sign thing. Well, it, not neon, because that's too obvious. But you get my point. It's the game basically telling you this guy is important, or different, or unique. I've actually heard a few friends of mine theorize that the entire reason why Chaos is lowercase, which drives me crazy, by the way, is specifically as another indicator to the player, this guy is not normal. I don't think it was necessary, because he's clearly not normal in every other way, but 
you get my point. Um, you know, his getting rid of the notion, the notion, the gnosis. Is gnosis singular? I usually, I usually hear gnosis as the plural, and notion or notion. Anyways, gets rid of him, right? It, her, we don't know who it was. And I also like, um, there's a bit where he walks up to Cosmos, um, and did I write down her exact, oh yes, uh, so where's the real you? <laughs> now that's actually an interesting question, considering that that basically is the real her. Um, and there's also the fact that Virgil, Mr. Purple Testament, flat out says boss to chaos, which implies some other things that we'll get to later, along with some unanswered questions, which we'll get to later. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff to talk about that I could talk about now that I'm saving for future videos. What I want to talk about now is the blue eyes thing. Now, we know that's Mary. That, that's, duh, spoiler alert. Um, we know it's Mary's soul or, or consciousness or whatever the hell you want to actually call it within the confines of Xenosaga. And that when she manifests, she's able to do far more than the android body is capable of doing. I want to mention this for two reasons. First, excellent job to the directors of the game. The voice directors as well as the actual animation directors. Cosmos acts completely differently when she has blue eyes over red. And that's a nice touch. Even though we can see the eye difference, we can tell this is basically a different person. She is very robotic, crisp, and efficient in her movements when she's got the red eyes, when she's Cosmos. When she has the blue eyes, she moves more like a person, talks more like a person, and incidentally is way stronger, which again kind of has to do with the whole will theme of the franchise, which we haven't really gotten into yet. The second reason I wanted to bring this up is I find myself wondering why it is, I know this sounds weird, but why it is that Mary, Blue Eyes, only manifests periodically in Cosmos. Now, maybe there's some specifics I've forgotten about, but it always struck me as a little bit weird that she only really shows up when she's needed. Like when things are really bad, like an entire Gnosis fleet is coming. It's like, ah, you know. That it, it can, I guess it kind of aggravates me. I'm just going to be as honest about it as I can. I'm sorry. I, I don't like speaking ill of things, but it kind of aggravates me that Mary only shows up when she's needed. It's kind of a similar problem I have with Chaos. Chaos has mega powers, right? So why does he just chill most of the time? Uh, anyways, I do want to talk about one other character before I move on. Um, and that character... Actually, hang on, I want to mention the cleaning bugs. That's a great idea. It's a great way to explain why everything looks so neat. They have literal nanomachines designed to clean things. That's cool. I love that. But I want to talk about Cherenkov. Now, I've mentioned him several times, so I hope you've been paying attention, because to me, Cherenkov is probably the most relatable character. He is what Alan failed to be for me. I don't know about you guys. He is someone who is a almost a pure example of a victim. There's no malice in this guy. There is no evil in Cherenkov, but as I was defining it. Evil being defined by intent, not actions. Instead, what we have is someone who was, as I said earlier, programmed, designed, built to kill, and not just to kill efficiently, but to be violent and aggressive. And then, all right, go live in society. And we see in him another aspect of just how messed up society has become to the idea that rather than being properly modulated or reprogrammed or fixed or set up in a separate area which is designed for people like him or anything whatsoever, he's just set loose as a civilian. 
And of course, he has absolutely no idea how to deal with that. So he kills someone. And then <laughs> his future wife argues strongly for using the, the advanced medical technology they have of the arrows. I mean, this is, this is a game in which people live for centuries regularly. I mentioned the tech level. So she argues, why don't we just make him docile? Why don't we just help him? And then she ends up wooing him. And I want to stress, by the way, a lot of his, his backstory is presented to us simultaneously, obviously, and subtly. And I like the way they do that. A little too much of the exposition of this game feels ham-fisted. There are too many scenes where someone just says, basically just pulls up, like you can almost see them. You can picture it. They pull up a note and said, as you know, I shouldn't say that, that's not what I mean. But, you know, they just start expositing, this is this, and that is that. Albedo does that like three times. You know, it's like, oh, I should do this, and this, and this. By contrast, his flashbacks in the cathedral ship feel very natural. We actually only get glimpses of his life, but each of those glimpses tell us all that we need to know. The woman who, you know, he, the way he says that, why did you marry me? You can hear it there, that he had found someone that was willing to be close to him, that was willing to be connected to him, that he was like, oh my God, you know, maybe I could have some place in, in a world that is not at war. And then to be betrayed by that woman, to be used as a tool by that woman, and everything she says, again, speaks volumes with only a few words. She gets a license to be cloned, rather than to have a child with him, and she throws her VR headset at him. That's all I need for love. What we are seeing in her is another example of the preference thing. Another deviant, if you will. And I don't mean deviant in a bad way. I mean a deviation. Someone who... We get the impression from her that she is the kind of person who, regardless of him would never actually want to have a child, would probably never want to make love to someone. The idea of going through such a process probably is just... Un I, I, I picture that it's repulsive to her, that it's something that she could never bring herself to do. But she wants to have a child. She wants to have you know some kind of offspring and project to, to have children for whatever reason. So she still wants the same general things that other people. That's the point of a deviation. It's not completely abnormal. There's a difference between taboo and wrong. She's not someone who wants to go out and eat all life and, and turn it into dark matter. Like, I know that's an extreme example, but it gets across my point. She's not someone who's completely off the norm, merely a deviation of the norm. I still want a family. She had no intention of divorcing him, remember. You'll still be my husband, right? but I will have a clone which will be my child, and that will be my family unit. And then, of course, he walks up on her, there's a flash, and then her body's on the ground. Wonderful direction again. And we can just see what happened. All right, we'll reprogram him. Nope. All right, we'll reprogram him better. That's what Margulis finds him. Now, I kind of like to think that, Mar this is just my impression, I like to think that when Margulis found him, he saw someone who was two things. One, a useful tool. I mean, he was able to take out quite a large number of people, basically barehanded. That is not unimpressive. But two, he saw a sack of meat that had the potential for a soul, to use Margulis' own terminology on this one. The idea that not every human being is actually alive, that only the ones who try to reach out with will or concept become truly living beings. 
he wanted to embrace him in that manner, to truly convince him. This is the zealot thing again. Because remember, a zealot doesn't say, we should do this because it, because it approves of their political agenda. A zealot does not say, we should do this because it's appropriate for the circumstances. No, a zealot says, we should do this because in the zealot's mind, they should do that. And I get the very strong impression that Margulis fully believes his own party line, so to speak. That he really is a zealot for his cause. So he joins Utic. It's funny how much of an influence Utic has on this franchise. And then he goes and wipes out a lot of people. I also like how Margulis flat out tells him, Why'd you send me on this mission, sir? I wanted to test your loyalty. Just, just says it flat out. And then he goes up on this ship for this very dangerous mission to get the Zohar uh, uh, emulator. That's it. I couldn't, that's the fake Zohar. I couldn't think of the name for a second. The uh, Zohar emulator. And he, he's, it's all on display. Going back through this again, I was just like, wow, yeah, no, he's, he is way different from everyone else around him. He legitimately acts and behaves differently from those around him. And then he comes into contact with the Gnosis. Stuff happens. We get a lot of presentation. He's actually in a lot of this game. Right up until we get to that cathedral ship and we finally get all his backstory. And then he turns into the gargoyle. By the way, did you catch the fact that he has two little ads in that fight? I know I'm probably speaking like a weirdo here, but I like to think that that was the notions of his, his wife and his daughter. Daughter. Got to really put that in quotes since she, he actually had nothing to do with her. But you get my point. I don't know for sure. I have no idea. It just seems like it would be very appropriate, given what the Gnosis really are. But anyways. And then he has that final speech to Shion. And he mentions that he had rejected the world. That feeling of being someone who isn't wrong. You know, isn't just some disgusting, horrible human. But instead of someone who is a deviation through preference, through variation, is someone who simply does not belong with the rest of the world. And how he has chosen to approach that is that he used drugs or he used causes in order to try and compensate for that, but in his personal experience, none of that ever worked. It was only when he finally rejected the world, he had peace with himself. Now I bring this up because, as we will discuss in future games, there are four basic results when you die in this setting. And one of them is basically to die at peace, to fully sublimate yourself into the rest of, into death, and to fade willingly and knowingly. And I like to think that initially, as weird as this was going to sound, he chose the first fate, which is to, to reject that and to become a gnosis, right? The gargoyle fight. But when he had that conversation with Shion, he gained, he grew a measure of peace with what he was and who he was and accepted that and then thus earned the fourth choice, the sublimation and exceptions into the collective unconscious. Just my opinion on it. I enjoyed going through this game, despite some of the grind. Uh, we'll see what I think of Episode 2 next week. See you there, guys.